You're listening to the Player Layer Podcast. I'm your host, Ivan Alexiev, and today I'm very happy to have with me Eduardo Baraf. Um, Edo is both, he, he, he wears a lot of hats. He is a game designer, uh, he's a game publisher, he works in both digital games and um, tabletop games. Uh, he also reviews games, he previews games, he has a YouTube channel called Gaming with Edo. Uh, I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure there's even more stuff that he's uh, involved with in the gaming industry. Uh, so we got to cover a lot of topics and I'm very, very excited to um, kind of share this conversation with you because I think he has a very unique viewpoint and just a lot of great advice if you're interested in doing game design or anything anything that has to do with games. Um, I think this would be a great conversation for you to listen to. So thank you very much again, and enjoy. And first of all, how are you doing, Edo? I'm doing all right. Doing all right. Uh, heading into the uh, Thanksgiving uh, break here in the states, so things are pretty relaxed. Awesome. Could you tell me how you first got into game design? I know you've been doing game design for a pretty long time. Yeah, you know, um, I've been pretty fortunate that I've been either doing games or 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 sort of technology for my entire career. But basically, I played a ton of video games as a kid. Didn't really design anything. Just board games and video games and that kind of thing. And then I, I went to the University of Michigan and I wanted to join, which is a huge school, and I wanted to join a group that was making games. And the only group that had anything to do with video games was the uh, Dr. Mario Club, where they played and competed in Dr. Mario, which is interesting in and of itself. Um, but because no one else was doing it, I started an organization on campus called Wolverine Soft. Uh, and that's where we started making stuff. Um, we had some fits and, uh, you know, some some problems, but ultimately uh, made a game called Crisis Wolverine in Search and Green, which was like a campus-based role-playing game. Um, and then from there, got into QA, and then from QA to production and design, and have been doing a lot of design in video games since, and then on the board game space. Um, the first game I worked on was a game called murder of crows with thomas denmark uh he had already started it but he needed some support on the design side and we started working together he and i were working at a video game company together at the same time um you know and from there i did more and more so i've, I've been fortunate enough to be around the games um basically my whole life yeah how does, how, does it, how does it compare like um you know the video game industry and uh like how did you make that shift to board games um, you know, that's interesting. It's a pretty broad question, I think, in a couple key ways. One, um, at the time, I was working on a um, online Facebook games and mobile games, and we had shut down a game after two or three years. And, you know, when you shut down an online game, it, it disappears, right? No one can play it. It's gone. And, and you know, I was very interested at that time in, in making a board game. Again, because, you know, they're permanent, right? Like, they might not be popular and they not, not, not may not be selling, but, like, you know, they don't uh, become obsolete. Like, you can just always have it on a shelf as long as it doesn't get, like, get set on fire. You can, like, play it again. 
Um, and so that was very appealing. I think a big difference. Another, um, you know, difference is typically team size. Board games can, are are going to be smaller teams than than video games, though indie games are pretty small. Um, and there's some big board games. But the other thing I really like about board games is that they're WYSIWYG. Like what you see is what you get, right? You don't you don't need an engineer uh, to make things happen, and you don't need all the tools and technology to make things happen. You can sort of really be pen and paper and then build it out. And you know, it's the magic you can make with a video game is fantastic, but there's just this like mountain of complexities you have to deal with and resolve and bugs and crashes and what tools and tech to use and just you know the whole gamut. And so um, a lot of that isn't doesn't exist in board games. So it's not that it's more pure, but it's definitely a straighter line from an idea to an execution in board games. For um, the other side of it is, you know, if, if you make a mobile game, you can sell one or a million copies or get one or a million downloads, and you don't have to print it in advance, right? So there's no cost of goods in video games, whereas in board games you have to. So you know, there are lots of different facets. I've, I've definitely found that. The you know there's a lot of design overlap between both and player experience overlap and sort of how you would take on a project. So um, I think definitely somebody who's made board games um, is suited to start learning and moving into video games, or somebody who's made a video game or two or designed one could translate a lot of that towards board games. I mean I think it's pretty close. Um, I think the last thing I would say is I find I do find the board game community. I like the board game community a bit more. Um, I feel like inherent to board games is this idea of playing together and communicating and cooperating, right? They're like this thing you're going to play in, with friends together and it sort of, you know, draws that kind of person. Whereas I think video games has a lot of that, but also has a lot of sort of solo experiences. And I found, I just, I found the indie board game scene to be more universally, universally, engaging accepting supportive you do that in indie video games but just not i feel like you also have a lot more people who are just sort of out for their own and making their own thing in one upsmanship and you know they just have a little bit of a different vibe Uh, neither is bad or good right but like i i I found the board game space a bit more welcoming and a bit more supportive from my experiences because you've been through this process many times you've had uh a ton of Kickstarters and lots of games. Um, how does how do you usually start out with a game? What do you what do you look for when when you have that first um, first idea, maybe? And yeah, how 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 does that process begin for you with a game? From my perspective, and my I, I find that inspiration for games comes from all sorts of places. Sometimes you're inspired by a piece of art. Sometimes you're inspired by a game mechanic. Sometimes you're inspired by the idea of working with folks. Um, and, you know, each really is a different kickoff point for a game. Like to give an example, um, take Liftoff, which is a game I designed. I was really, I was playing a lot of Ticket to Ride. I was playing Catan. I was playing Small World. I was playing a lot of those sort of classic uh, you know, uh, Carcassonne type games. And that was at the time I really wanted to make a game because of what happened with that Facebook game I was talking about. And so I was sort of in the zone of like wanting to make and be this sort of 45 minute gateway, all ages or broad ages type of experience. And that's sort of where I started. And I just started with, you know, the idea of 
having pretty simple resources and uh, trying to create a sort of dynamic play around it. And the original liftoff wasn't a planet. It was actually, you know, you were trying to get off a deserted, a desert island. Um, And then like, you know, that sort of felt lame to me at the time. And I was like, well, what what if you're trying to get off a planet as opposed to like a little island? Um, But, but in contrast, right, like with Herbaceous, Herbaceous was all about um, this art that Beth Sobel had created for a different reason. She had made, uh, she had reskinned Bonanza with this incredible herb art. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing it. I mean, I literally saw the art on Facebook and it was saying, like, there, somebody needs to make a game with this art and it like should be really universally appealing. And I actually originally thought, it'd be great to make it a solitaire game and like a, literally like a game you play on Sunday with tea by yourself. <laughs> and, um, you know, I reached out to her and, and she said, sure. And originally she thought I was asking for more like art in that style, but I was like, no, no, no. I mean, I literally mean that art plus or minus three or four or five pieces. Um, but actually, I struggled doing the sol- solo solitaire game. Um, I had bought a bunch of books actually on on traditional solitaire, and like it isn't a, a type of game I play that much. And I wasn't trying to do a solo design. I was really trying to make much more of a solitaire game, right? Like a solo game versus take a game that's multiplayer and make it single player. Um, and so I was struggling with it. And then at the time, um, I had known Steve Finn actually through some of the reviewer stuff because I had reviewed a couple of his games and I think I met him at a con or whatever. Um, I asked him if he had done any solo design and he was like, no, but I've done multiplayer stuff. And I was like, well, we're not getting anywhere on solo. Give it a shot. And then he designed it. Um, and I thought he did a fantastic job and it, it really fit the audience and type of game I wanted to make, but it wasn't solo. Um, and then actually full circle, a little bit down the road, I was like telling this exact story at Gen Con to Keith Mateka, who I had just met. Um, and Keith was like, I do solo designs. <laughs> yeah. Let me do it. <laughs> and, and, and I was like, sure. Um, and so he ended up, so Herbaceous does have a solo mode. Um, and so that, and then, you know, ultimately I've worked with Keith a lot more. I've worked with Steve a lot more. I've worked with Beth a lot more. So it was a great start. But the, the long and the short was, <laughs> you know, uh, that was inspired by art. I mean, Skullcala was just inspired by the idea of like, small creatures taking on a gigantic monster in shadow of the colossus right like that's like a very um thematic start as opposed to mechanic one or or something else so um you know or uh for 100 tory uh, i'd known scott caputo for a while uh with with um the league of game makers and um Vincent Dutrait had expressed interest in working on a project. And so that one was a lot about the opportunity to work with Vincent and Scott, which I thought was fantastic. So, you know, I think, um, you know, ultimately, while I have designed a number of games and at a high level, I often operate as a product lead or creative director or somebody who's sort of tying everything together. And I do a lot of the component and sort of product manufacturing work. Um, But I'm not you know, like I'm not a waned designer. So like, I'll if I feel like I can do a good job, I'll do it. But if I feel like, no, this designer would be doing a better job than I would, I would, you know, I, I take on ver- various roles on all the projects. I'm not, you know, sort of exclusively in one seat. So it leaves a lot of openings to work with, work in just different ways within games. And, and I enjoy that a lot.
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember the first time I tried Herbaceous, uh, I could immediately tell that Steve Fenn was a part of the team because my first association was like Biblios uh, when I played it, but it's it's um, it's a really good game and it does have its own. Uh... Oh yeah, no, no, for sure, it's got that Biblios vibe. And in fact, I mean, the, one of the more interesting things was Keith was a fan of Biblios, and Keith in some ways the solo mode is almost one step closer to Biblios than the, the two to four player mode because of the extra third place or putting a card. Um, you know, uh, my relationship with Steve Finn started with me, like <laughs> basically grossly critiquing the theme of Biblios. Um, <laughs> in my first videos really early in, I love the game. Um, I was just like, I have no interest in Buddhist, well, I don't think I'm a Buddhist monks, but monks, European monks or whatever. I don't know what you want. But like the the whole thematic space of it was very Euro and very like, I could care less. No offense to anyone who cares more about it. But like, to me, it was like, like, could this be any other theme than, you know, monks, monks and, 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 you know, scribes. And so, um, you know, that's actually how we first met because that review got, because I was sort of, ridiculing it i guess it got a lot of social media attention not that much more than like a normal one would um and he saw it and it was it was a very positive review i think the game is is a fantastic game um but then he was like hey i'm doing a kickstarter with biblios dice do you want to do a preview for it and that's sort of how we got more in, in touch yeah could you tell me about the co-designing process like you said that you're more of you you can take different roles but when you're designing with other designers how do you sort of organize the whole thing and how do you decide uh, uh what, what what stays in the game ultimately sure um and you know it's really different with with you know not this isn't i don't think true across the industry uh, but certainly for my stuff for the most part Pencil first games are not solicited designs, which is to say um, a designer has already fully designed a game top to bottom. And, um, you know, I'm just, you know, licensing it as a publisher and going from there. Most of pencil first game stuff starts with um, the idea of what we want the game to be, the type of game, the space and sort of driving into it from that perspective. Um so like like an example would be for Sunset Over Water, it was, hey, it was really fun starting with Beth's art for Herbaceous. We should do that again. Hey, Beth, what are like some things you want to draw? And she's <laughs> like, well, I don't really get a chance to draw landscape. And she listed a few things and we said, well, we could do landscapes. And so the premise to, 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 to Steve was like, well, hey, you're going to have a game with a lot of landscape paintings, right? And like, what would that mean? And, um, and so, you know, he started taking that on. And so usually there's like, a, for, for these projects off, often, there's like a, an essentially a premise or uh, uh, um, like, if you think of, I, I've spoken a lot about mechanics, dynamics, and aesthetics. Um, oftentimes we'll, when I'm working with a designer, I'll talk to the aesthetics and the dynamics. It's like, I want these types of moments, this type of experience it should feel like this. And then the designer will be like, all right, well, let me mess around for a while. And so the process is usually the designer will work on that, then bring it back. And I've um, over the, you know, it's taken times, but I 
you know, I think people are fantastic at what they do. And I go out of my way not to um, um, mandate or prescribe what their what their things are. I, I like much more to like align on what the vision or goal for the product is and then and then go from there. So a lot of times the designer is really doing a ton of the, 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 the work. I'll just I'll be there at the beginning. And then as it's coming together and I'm reviewing first versions and stuff, that's where you know, it's a little bit more like a supercharged developer in that, you know, ultimately I have a little bit more sway than just like a, a developer on, in another organization. But a lot of it's like, well, I played it and this sort of sucked and that's confusing and this doesn't feel like it's reinforcing this idea or, you know, um, you know, for the whatnot cabinet, which is releasing early next year, um, Steve and I were working on it and we knew, again, started with collecting you know, what do we want? We want to be collecting small, little, beautiful objects that Beth Sobel will draw. Um, but then thinking about the experience and, and and sometimes it's like one of the things that Steve likes using all the time are um, um, initiative cards. Like he, I don't know, he loves that in his design. So you have a lot of cards that will have like, uh, you know, you'll, it'll have an accent, but it'll also have like a number like 37 and like 37 goes before 27 or, or goes after 27 or whatever. And like, it'll be used for turn order. And an example of that went into Sunset Over Water, where he had just numbers at the bottom of the card. And, you know, a, a place where I did some development was like, sort of like, man, just looking at a number sucks. <laughs> like, could it be like the time you wake up in the morning? And so we, you know, because suddenly it's thematic. Suddenly it's like, oh, whoever woke up first goes first. That feels much better than whoever had the 22 went but goes. But anyway, so for the whatnot cabinet, you know, the first version had that sort of initiative card thing. And in that case, it was just like, hey, man, I don't want to do another one of these. Like, we did that with Sunset. Like, let's not, what other ways can we have initiative? And I was like, well, there's, you know, there's like the King Domino way. There's like, there's, there's uh, like, you know, um, what the guys, Bruno, not Bruno, Bruno? Cathala. Yeah. Uh, had Bruno Cathala. Like he always does the sort of, you know, leave your pawn initiative track, you know, sometimes with, with, with you know, betting or not, depends on the game, but he's, he's pretty fond of that kind of initiative where like you pick something and that's going to establish turn order by looking at where the pawns are in a line. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I sort of pitched that to him. I was like, Hey, that's very similar to what you do, but it's like not the same <laughs> and it's a little different. Um, and like, you could be selecting the actions. And so, um, you know, he did some versions of that and it worked. I didn't design any of like, I didn't design any of that implementation. It was sort of like, Hey, maybe we go this way to go that. Um, I usually am heavily involved in the rules and then building things out. So another place, you know, like when you're making the components and bringing the game to the table, you start hitting things like, oh man, it sucks to be doing this or, you know, I don't want, you know, it's a small game. I don't want 300 of these things. Can we like think of it another way? Um, so, you know, it's that kind of a dialogue. Um, yeah, you know, like if I, I think about Skull Hollow, Skull Hollow, which initially was inspired by an idea my kid had, which was crazy because he wanted to make a 15 person game, which was one player versus 14 other players. And I was like, I, I'm like, I don't, what if that one other, what if the other 14 players were just controlled by one person? Mm. Um, but uh, that was like, I had actually, like, I knew I wanted a board, I knew I wanted it a diamond like confrontations, I knew I wanted. Um, 
the monster and you jump from the board to the monster and you had action cards. And I knew I didn't want dice and I knew I didn't want measurement, right? Like that was like, this should be easy to pick up thematic jumping on taking out abilities. Um, so like that, that was like really clear to me, but I was struggling to like make a game or make it fun. Right. Like I knew there was something in there, but like, I was just not getting it. And that's when, um, you know, uh, whatever I was talking to Keith about, Keith got involved. And from there he took it all. Like he really built out the, the, the cards and how they work. But like, if you go pull up my original prototype, which you know, was an idea of a game, but not actually a fun game. Mm -hmm. It's all the same components. It's all the same elements, but, you know, he actually made it a game. Um, and then then really my role with that is um, just play testing a ton and giving him feedback on 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 the game and, and, you know, the experience. And then really trying to execute the product vision with the guardians and and, and working with Dustin. So you know, it's it's very different. Um, it's much more like video games for what it's worth. Like the the model and board games of like a designer does a prototype independent from the group, pitches it, somebody buys the design, and then essentially develops it and skins it. Sometimes with the de designer, or sometimes completely without the designer, mm -hmm. is like was is totally foreign to me from from my experience coming through video games first and video games. You know, it, super indie, you're like finding friends to work with. But just generally speaking, you're working at a team and a company and people are specialists in their roles and the engineers and the artists and the designers are all good at what they do. And the producer or product lead is there to like make sure everyone's working together and you allow people to shine in their own re respects. But it's not it's just not as like it's much more collaborative and um, everyone in all disciplines working together from start to finish, whereas again not for, I, and i really think the kickstarter cha uh kickstarter change has has changed all this but if you go back 10 years to the sort of gatekeeper um publisher route it, it was much more not assembly line i think that's that's too much of a pejorative but like again this handoff process which is just very different yeah i find a lot of times that like restrictions or you know somebody giving you something to work with as a designer it's it's sometimes easier or and sometimes it leads to some like really creative uh really creative ideas when you can bounce ideas off of each other um could you tell me about because you mentioned playtesting and playtesting um skulk hollow could you tell me what are some ways that designers can like optimize their playtesting uh, process and how you um go about it uh sure uh, I, I mean, I think playtesting largely depends on the game. And obviously, we're now in a very different period with the COVID situation. So like, generally speaking, you know, a, two years ago, a year ago, it was about knowing who your playtest group was um, and making sure that when you did come to playtest, you were prepared, you had an agenda, you knew how you're going to do it, and a lot of different sort of uh, methodologies that taking on a playtest. Um, I, actually, it is something I have a, a video about, which is like running a play test. But now uh, it's very different. Like now what is sort of key to the development that everyone's doing is whether it's Tabletopia or Tabletop Simulator, um, both are pretty easy to get started with. Tabletopia arguably is a little bit easier, but it depends on what you're comfortable with. Um, having your prototype playable 
uh, online is is critical. I mean, it's it's a requirement. And then now there are all these new um, Discord and other community groups are focused around playtesting and doing those digital playtestings. It's not exactly the same, but it, it is bridging the gap between what you're able to do and what um, was possible previously. So, for example, Mall Peak, which is in, in, in heavy playtesting right now, which is the sequel to Skulk Hollow, uh, we have a Tabletopia version that we regularly are testing and playing. Um, the um, um, other titles, I mean, when, when Foliferous, which is coming to Kickstarter in probably February or March, depending, um, you know, uh, that was, that's, I'm working with Steve Finn, and that was a game where, I, that was actually an interesting one. It was an interesting one because um, I've really wanted to make a, a menagerie game with legendary creatures that's lighter weight. Um, and so the the brief, so to speak, to, to Steve was like, I want a game with a ton of meeples where you have to collect meeples of all different shapes and sizes. And he started in on it and he was working on it. And boy, he was just whiffing over and like nothing was coming together. And then we got to one which was like good, but not like it basically came down to like, why don't you just remove all of this stuff? And let's do a simple game like this. Um, and it was sort of like, I don't remember the exact conversation. He's like, yeah, but that doesn't hit any of the things that you were looking for in this title. And it was sort of like, yeah, but we're not coming anywhere close to that anyway. So like, let's just forget that ask and go and just make this game because this set of mechanics is a lot of fun. You're just trying too hard to do all these other things. And if we simplify it, you know, we can go, you know, we can, instead of making it, part of legendary creatures we can go back and do it part as part of sort of the standard line that we've been doing together which is like the herbaceous sunset of water base of sprouts the one cabinet um and so we took that on and then we worked at that so that was one where um is just an example of of massaging getting something that was was had too much in it and and starting to cut things out from a design perspective but the point is the first time he pitched it to me was on tabletopia we played it on tabletopia he was live editing and we were changing it while playing it on tabletopia uh and then you know that's how we got through that process so um the other thing you can do if you if you do know some groups and some people you're you're fans of is yes game crafter is still working uh, as of now um so you can sort of ship and get um playables to folks to play and really you just need to have a good relationship with them to know that they're giving you good information and how to sort of decipher the testing i um did a pretty robust online play test with the print and plays um for heroes and tricks i think it had like a 80 or 100 participants i don't remember but that was like a really robust process where we had signups and reddit threads and uh, and that was another one I did a video on. So you can still do the printed play route, but really the emergence of the, the I mean, they've always been there, but the use of the tabletopias and the tabletop simulators has really created this online playtesting network that's pretty effective right now. Yeah, for sure. As a designer, what do you um, look for in the playtest itself? Like, do you, do you usually go in with uh, specific goals or... Yeah, uh, um, you know, I think uh, to some extent, it depends on the state of the game, where you are. But generally speaking, um, you know, I will go into a play test and, you know, ideally I'm observing it. 
um, you know, it can be recorded. Uh, either I've, either I'm teaching, if it's early, I'm teaching the game. If it's late, I have a rule book and I'm doing a blind test. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's a really easy thing to track, right? Like give them the rule book and then just see how, like, you know, you can ask them to verbalize their confusion or dive in and playing, but like, basically what was their experience dealing with the rule book? And then did they play the game correctly? That's pretty cut and dry. Mm -hmm. Oh, they didn't follow that rule right. I probably should rewrite that rule. Um, that's if you're like at that stage. Earlier though, um, you know, for me for playtesting, I'm just watching the experience. I have my own set of expectations on how it should roll and play, what should be easy, what should be complicated. And it's about seeing when people stall out, when people um, um, are successful, what you know i do like to hear feedback at the end as well but i i look at a lot of it in watching and 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 thinking about the experience that is unfolding um i like to get a variety of folks and backgrounds depending on the title i did recently do a video about tracking time i think it's very important to understand what not just how long did the entirety of the experience take how long did the rules take? How long does each turn take? And really sort of clocking out and seeing what parts of your game are fast, what parts of your game are slow. Um, but I, you know, you just, for me, you, you know, I've, I've done it enough where you're really just, I'm like, I'm less about the surveys, I guess. Like the surveys afterwards, I, I like, I think are valuable. Um, but, you know, I have found that typically, they're not as good as seeing what happened and they're not as good as like a bunch of text isn't all that helpful. A bunch of ratings isn't all that helpful. Um, if anything, the surveys that are most valuable are the ones that are tracking like how many tokens did you end with? What was your final score? You know, how many turns did it take? Really sort of uh, actionable data. Mm -hmm. um, I don't mind reading through 30 comments, but you know, even then you're just trying to look for commonalities or typical frustrations and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, it's it's interesting to me because I've been doing a lot of playtesting with uh, playtesting play other people's games. And uh, I, I find that usually what the best outcomes are is just, uh, you know, for the, the, the designer having that video of, uh, of the playtest without... Uh, without help from him and how the, usually that's when you get those um, roadblocks or, you know, you see, you see what, yeah, for sure. Yeah. What can go wrong. Um, you, you mentioned, you know, uh, kind of having hardships in a game where you can't figure out, uh, you can't find the fun essentially. What, what, what can keep you motivated or when do you know when to actually stop? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think that's something you get a sense for over time. Um, and you get a sort of a tolerance for it, you know, in some ways you learn the lesson of, of, of walking away from a design earlier by paying the price of releasing a game that wasn't fully, you know, baked or, 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 or working on a design six months longer than you should have. Um, and sort of it, until you've actually paid those costs, it's hard to really appreciate the importance. Um, I don't know. I just think it takes a lot of trust uh, and uh, 
understanding from you and your teammates on what you're trying to do. And, and you're always going to look at investments and some costs and things like that. And there were, you know, um, a, a good example of that to a degree, it's a little different, but it's relevant was legendary creatures. I was very clear in my mind that I wanted legendary creatures to be a 30 to 45 minute game. I started working with a, a designer I really enjoyed and a person I really enjoyed, Chris, Christopher Ham, And, you know, working through the design on and on, it became very clear that, you know, his sensibility and the level of complexity he was hitting was more than 45 minutes, right? We were looking at a game that was turning into a mid-weight game as opposed to like a light casual game or you know, like a little family. And, and I, I came to a point where I sort of had to make a decision where it was either, it was like, one, I either just walk away and go in a totally different direction because like we're, we're not getting to where we need to be on that sort of original brief. Or B, I say, you know what? I like this game. It's a ton of fun. Chris is doing a great job, which is all true. I just give up on the idea that it's going to be a 45-minute game and just roll into the two-hour game. Um, ultimately, I did the latter. I think probably what would have had to happen when we made that decision was that we were going to refine the art a little bit and the marketing and 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 make it like my brand isn't really midweight game my, like i don't have a brand for two hour games at, at pencil first game so it's a little off off our market um and and that was a little bit of a struggle but basically the point was in that moment it was very clear that we were not on track to sort of what we were trying to do initially and that was like a moment where you could have either either throw like essentially Essentially, we had to throw something out. And what I had to throw, I could have either thrown out the game or I had to throw out the idea. And I liked the game that Chris had made. It just wasn't the idea. So I had to chuck the idea. Um, whereas the opposite might be, um, you know, in that Steve Finn example, throwing out like, this game sucks. There's some cool things in here. Let's chuck these and, and go back and get the other one, you know, and, and refine it. Um, you just have to, I think, I think a good way to understand that moment is like the fun, like, you know, I really am a big fan of mechanics, dynamics, and aesthetics, right? And um, I think you need to be able to envision the game being played in, in, with, by the people you, you know, you need to think of the product. Who's going to play it? What type of fun are they going to have? Like, what's their experience going to be? And if what you have in front of you doesn't deliver that, you need to be able to draw the line to to it. You need to be able to say, well, if we fix this, this, and this, we could get there. Or if this happened or this. But if you're like, man, we've been we've been circling around this, you know, a, a good, you know, it isn't, it can sometimes be a false positive, but if you've been doing work and, and you hit the second time, you're like, you've gotten back to where you were. Like, you can, like, you work on some mechanics, whatever, and like, you make some changes and then like, Ultimately, like you're, you basically have the same problem you had before you did the last month of work. Mm -hmm. That can happen once, and you can pivot out of it. But then, if you try again, and you're back at the starting point again, that's usually a pretty good sign. Like something's going to change. Like either different people, different idea, different theme, different mechanics. But like, if you find yourself "quote unquote" swirling at Disney, we used to call it swirl. Like if you found a project in swirl, um, it just meant you like you were chasing your tail and 
you know, if you didn't make a dynamic change or dramatic change or reorg or whatever, you were just going to continue to swirl. Um, cause, cause like oddly enough, swirling has inertia, um, that has to be dealt with. So, um, yeah, it's a hard call. It's, it's a project. It's like, you know, very specific to the endeavors, but it is important to ask yourself at different inflection points. Are we on the right path? Are we doing the right thing? Yeah, for sure. And there's, there's several ways to look at it. I find And I, I actually talked to Bruno Cathala a couple of weeks ago and, um, uh, like the, one of the things he said was just having a lot of projects in different stages and like taking off your taking your mind off the project can the way I understood it can like make you less sentimental about it and sometimes that's a good thing because when you go back to it you can kind of look at it with a fresh uh, uh, yeah I, I, for sure I, I, I think uh, a different way uh, of doing that as well is like, like just trying not to burden a design with the future of your business or your company or yourself right like which is especially the case on your first design because as far as you know it's your only design right mm -hmm. um but i think you know the moment you put something on a timeline you're you're on one hand you're maybe are sh shuttling it forward but you're also not necessarily giving it space to breathe so like being able to work on a variety of things like like an example is in some ways, I mean, this is just more about not having a timeline, but like when I'm, when we're working on Mall Peak, Fuliferous, the expansion to the 100 Tory, I actually don't know which is going to finish first, right? Like I, I used to be more like, no, the order is this one, this one, this one. And then I'd get really frustrated and, and try to push things. But now much more, I, I'm like, no, we're working on all these things. One of them will hit a bump one of them will take longer than expected, whatever. And one of them will go faster. And like, as they manifest, that's when they start coming together. So fluoriferous manifested very quickly. Once we broke out of the problem we were having, this game moved quickly. The art came together very quickly. Um, and so it's next. <laughs> uh, whereas now, you know, Tori and Malpeak are sort of competing for which would be next and we'll see. They're not competing, but like, I just don't know the answer yet. And, you know, and that's fine. So that comes with doing more games and having more success. But at the same time, it just, you know, I think if you're trying to force something, sometimes it's better to just, as Bruno was saying, leave it alone, go work on something else and go back to it. That can be hard if you're like working with a team of people, right? Um, that's, you know, that's very designery who's just working on paper, right? Um, as opposed to like a team of people who are being paid to do something. And, you know, in video games, you get that problem a lot where it's like, it'd be great to like stop working on this and go working on something else. But the company is paying the salary of this 30 person team. And like, you, that's a, lu a luxury of like restarting, like that, that kind of sunken cost often forces a lot of decisions. You know, it, it's always very different when you're working independently or not like, getting paid because bruno okay i don't know okay i don't want to speak for him but like if you're an independent designer you're working on stuff and like when it's ready you sell it you're not getting paid hourly to be doing it or salary to do it yeah, that may not be different. true for him but it's very different than when you're like no this is all a team of people that are being paid month over month and in four you know four eight twenty you know whatever amount of months we're going to run out of money like it's a very different dynamic 
um, than working on something until you're happy enough to pitch it to a publisher. Yeah, for sure. It's, especially when you have deadlines and you need to like fulfill it. And like the, the scenario you described, it, 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 uh, it is definitely different than getting your game ready and then presenting a, a finished product product without uh, having that deadline. So another broad question is, uh, could you tell me what sort of the difference in mindset is between, you know, the publisher um, mind and the design mind when going into a game? It's a good question. One one thing I would say, just in general, generals, I don't really think of myself as a publisher or, and, and again, this is maybe where I'm a little more unique, not unique, but you know, I'm sort of like an indie boutique publisher, not like a publisher publisher, but like, I think of myself as a game maker. Like, I don't actually think of myself as a designer. I don't actually think of myself as a publisher, like, like in my inner soul. I just think of myself as a game maker. And to me, that involves, you know, working through the ideation, the game design, the manufacturing, the publishment, you know, like all the things that bring a game to life. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, we've, I've said it now like five times, but part of the idea around mechanics, dynamics, and aesthetics is thinking about your game. So I think oftentimes designers don't think, they think about the game they want to make, they think about themselves, they think about how it's playing the mechanics, right? But they aren't necessarily thinking about their audience, their users, their players. Um, and to me, that's what makes it a product and, and on the publishing side, right? Like, it, 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 it's about thinking about your, like, your game. It's about thinking about the design, the mechanics of the game. It's about thinking about the players. And then it, once you put, put past the product of publishing, you're thinking about the market. You're thinking about the rest of the games in the space. You're thinking about the price point. You're thinking about, you know, how's it going to be successful? What's it's going to be? How's it going to be different from the, the pack? You know, what are the, what's unique about it? Like, and so I find the having a holistic understanding of the entire picture to be really valuable, um, rather than sort of having a broken up understanding. Um, the part about thinking about what the player experiences really is a huge part of, you know, just are you making the game for yourself or are you making it for other people? Um, and, and I think some designers innately know that other designers really just make games that games they enjoy. Like they play games, they make games and they pass it over. But I do think it's really important to think about it that way. And so it's just like, I try not to bring a designer publisher framework per se. I try to bring the holistic view of the, the product from this, from the get go. Certainly you could argue on the design side, you focus on what's the fun, what's the experience, and then on the publisher side, you're focused on, you know, how's it going to make money? What's the marketing? Mm -hmm. But even, you know, again, working in video games, free, uh, I work in free-to-play mobile games, right? And so, like, it's easy to think of those things as different, but in fact, you know, how your design works and what monetization you use and how you sell your game is sort of intrinsic to the gameplay experience and the user user experience. So you really do need to think about that sort of whole picture 
um, if you want, you know, a game that is both fun, but also, you know, pressures and, and incentivize people to spend money as they play because it's, you know, they're, they're getting it for free. Um, you know, I think the more holistic that design is, the better. So I'm just, um, I think that, you know, I, I would suggest to everyone that they think of like think about it as design product market um not just this is my job somebody else is going to do the other jobs even if you're going to have other people do the other jobs um i think it's still valuable Mm -hmm. I, i love what you said about being a game maker and because you know you can split that into 15 different uh like they say hats you know <laughs> but um ultimately it, it is a whole process and the other thing you said about um sort of selfishly doing a game versus knowing your audience i think is super valid for uh like many designers i i know uh it it usually works in favor of the game when you're thinking about the audience i find for sure i i think so yeah yeah if we can go back to mechanics dynamics and aesthetics for a final time i actually just today i watched your i rewatched your video of um on that subject and because we've already mentioned it a few times and i'm not sure if we've like elaborated enough could you kind of explain what uh what the difference is between thinking you know mechanics and theme versus mechanics dynamics and aesthetics and i remember you you gave an example of lord of the rings uh by kanitsia yeah i think that that, that's that that's a, a a great example. Uh, I'll, I'll, let me be general, and then I'll get to some examples quickly. So, okay, so mechanics and themes is is often how people break it up, and they're just thinking like, what you know, what what's the the it it sort of bleeds into like, how does the game work? What does it look like? Um, and you know, uh, I think there's more nuances to that, but it's sort of a you know, it's a pretty simple way of of splitting an experience. Um, mechanics, dynamics, aesthetics is the idea that the game maker, the designer, creates mechanics. So on the left side where the M is, is you have the designer making the mechanics, which are the rules, the, the foundation of the experience. And then dynamics are in the middle where all those mechanics mix together. And then on the other side is the aesthetic, which you can think of the type of fun, the experience that the player is having, so the user is having. Uh, is it a challenging game? Is it competitive, cooperative, fun? Is it a sense of exploration, journey, uh, creative expression, uh, uh, submission, the idea that you're just like a pastime? And so, you know, like the dynamics are the moments where of spark, which come out of the, the, the under, underlying mechanics. So like, you know, baseball is a pretty easy example, but you have like rules that are like, you have a batter, you have a pitcher, you can get out at each base. Um, the dynamics would be the moment when there's a guy at first on second and third, each get one, you know, first place gets one point or gets two points. Second place gets one point when you're splitting up this territory versus first place gets 10 points. Second place gets two points, right? Suddenly the difference between winning or losing the territory is much more dramatic, creating more of a, an outcome, right? And so those are what are producing those moments that are leading to the type of fun you're trying to create. And so um, it's really this idea of what you can control from the design side and then how it translates through the player experience and being able to like think through and create those lines. Um, I mentioned on, you know, for me, the confrontation confrontation example is so powerful because um, 
in some ways in that in that example theme is sort of part of the resulting aesthetic it's the fun of of experiencing this world and these characters and what happens in that game if you're not familiar with it uh, listening um it's like stratego you have units facing you uh the good guys um versus the bad and each unit all have like basic movement they're you're you're on this it's like a stratego board but it's a diamond so you're working your way across you know, good guys are trying to get the ring um, um, to the end, and the bad guys are just trying to kill everybody or kill Frodo or get to the Shire or kill Frodo, whatever, um, or essentially get the ring. Um, and the dynamic of it is each character has a hidden ability, but the abilities create dynamics that drive the theme. So, like the idea that uh, if Frodo and Sam are in the same square, Sam auto, like, and they get attacked, Sam can defend, automatically defend, um, instead of, like, the opponent getting to pick. Or, um, you know, uh, the... Um, I have actually haven't played in a little bit, but, like, an example, I think um, Boromir has a... is, like, a bomb. So, like, he'll... If, if, if he goes in front... He basically can sacrifice himself and kill anybody. Um, and things like that, where you're playing with just these little standees and you're getting the experience, not just that you're like, Oh, the text says this, which reminds me of the book or the movie. It's more like, I just created this dynamic where I feel like how that character must have felt to make this decision or what it must've been more in what it must've been to try to, to capture Frodo. And every time you go to capture him, he gets away because his ability lets him retreat automatically. So you have to try to surround him. So, um, those are really good examples of how pulling together those dynamics creates this this type of fun, which is this sort of escapism narrative fun along with competitive. Um, so it's just a really good and interesting way, and I think um, it forces the forces you as a designer to think of two important things: one, what the end goal experience, what the end goal player behavior, what the end goal fun you're trying for is, and how to you know build on that. But also in the middle, the idea that mechanics themselves are sort of just rules and, and aren't really what the player is doing. They're doing the mechanics, but that's not typically where the fun, the moments, the enjoyment, the excitement come from. Those are typically the dynamics, which is like how the mechanics lay together another like another example a simple simple example from herbaceous which we were talking about if you're not familiar with herbaceous you're gonna um draw a card you look at it you decide if you want to keep it or not uh, or give it to everybody like put it in a community pool and based on what you decide on the first card keep or give you then flip over the next card which you haven't seen and it's the opposite so essentially what that does is it means when i look at my first card I have to decide how bad do I want this or do I want to see the card I don't know yet. A totally different rule would have been draw two cards, put one in front of you and one in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. And now suddenly you no longer have that moment. You're just deciding what you want and what you want to give as opposed to do I keep this, do I give this? And then also finding the reveal, oh, I got the thing I didn't want or oh, that was a great choice. And so they're really little ways to bring out those moments for players. Um, so, I mean, that's sort of the, I mean, they're, again, I'll just, since it, maybe if you can link it or otherwise, but 
So I've done a couple of videos, but there's actually a paper uh, by uh, Marco Blanc and a number of other folks, which is like like a written, very exclusive uh, version of this. And then uh, I can't remember this, the thing, but like an internet, uh, a cartoon internet group, I forget what the name it is, but they did an amazing like version of this where they explain it, all of which are better than mine. Um, I had the luxury of working with M Marco Blanc worked at Looking Glass on System Shock and a bunch of other games. I then worked with him at Mind Control Software in a number of titles. And then ultimately Heroes Welcome uh, was us working together one more time um, uh, where he he had designed this game and, and, and we built it and published it. So, and that was an interesting one um, in that like, Heroes Welcome is the only game, pencil first game is like, published that isn't really a pencil first games game um he was very you know he had the design he worked at my development there i was really focused on the art the execution the product the mechanics i gave mark feedback here and there um but you know even with the rule book he wanted to do a certain way and he wanted this and and and, and because of you know this was very much he had already made the game knew it and i was like helping him bring his vision to life um ultimately after we did the kickstarter and all that stuff it was like he wasn't he didn't want to go down the route of being a publisher like he really just wanted to make heroes welcome um and so it made sense for pencil first games to sort of be the the publisher in that sense um but you know it, that was a project where you know most of my feedback was a little bit more like a developer in the context of well, it depends on the company, I guess. But like, I was not saying, hey, we need to change it. It was more like, hey, you know, we saw this in the thing. You know, what do you think? Um, but uh, very happy with how that game came out. And that uh, Heroes Welcome is an amazingly um, thematic game where it like is, is giving you this very unique experience of playing as the goblins who are like both trying to fleece the um heroes by you know getting all their goods getting them drunk having them false you know like basically getting all their money so they're broke and then they have to go back to the dungeon and then at the same time using those materials to sell to the 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 the, the bad guys who are going in the dungeon to fight them so you're like playing both sides of the market um and you know it's a really interesting experience of how that how that's built out and sort of a very it's like a, it's like a, uh, the sidecar to the standard adventure story. So it's it, it, it's a lot of fun. Mm, yeah, uh, I want to get into. I, I want to ask you because you're you're doing a, a lot of reviews and obviously you're playing a lot of games. How important do you think it is for designers to play uh, games, which they're not working on? I mean, I think it's. I mean, you know. Uh, you know, uh, older expression would be like, you can't write a book if you don't read. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know how accurate that is, but for sure, understanding and playing games is wildly valuable, both in terms of just looking at and understanding the marketplace and what the players are experiencing. Like, you know, I can't tell you how many times somebody pitches, not pitches a game, but like, talks about a game, mentions a game on as a design. And I'm like, hey, you probably should play these three games because as far as I can tell, you're making them. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, or being aware of the marketplace, new mechanics, new combinations. You know, I mean, 
I'm sure you can be a great chef with an incredible palate making a, a type of food um, without going off and eating a bunch of different cuisines from different countries and different, you know, spices and stuff. But I suspect if you had the opportunity to, to go taste more, you'd improve your palate and your understanding of, 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 of flavors and options and, and, and techniques. And then you can roll that back into the games you're making. So I think it's just valuable. It does take time. I've being a reviewer has really forced me to play just so many games. And, um, you know, I, I think it's really helped me. Could you tell me, of course, uh, as if there is no COVID, um, <laughs> how, how, um, uh, your experience with conventions is and what advice you would kind of give to um, somebody who's thinking of whether they should go to a convention or bring their board game to yeah, a, such an event or community. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly a challenge right now. Um, so the advice right now is to avoid. Um, but I, I mean, I think it's hugely va va valuable. Uh, it's an opportunity to see your game with different people. Um, I had a great Q and a with Eric Slauson, uh, who designed tattoo stories and um, we're working on a project together and he has, uh, he, he designed a couple other games that have months mon monstrosity or however that game is pronounced. Um, but Eric, um, you know, he broke into the industry and really grew through going and getting himself to conventions. I mean, it's just, it's like having that opportunity to engage and, and see the community and talk to more folks um, show your game, play your game, get outside of your bubble, which right now is a bad thing. Stay in your bubble right now. But, um, you know, I think, I think it's, it's hugely valuable. And, and the reality is there's conventions everywhere now, right? Like you can start going to conventions without trying to get to Gen Con. Um, and I think people should be doing it. Yeah, for sure. Um, sort of before we finish up, I always, give uh, i always ask designers um just for advi general advice to somebody who's thinking about uh, making a game thinking about doing a kickstarter maybe uh and i know that this whole conversation has been basically that more or less but uh what are what do you think are the most important things um that someone should know who wants to start out in this you know, for the long form version of this, I highly recommend some of my early videos. One's called So You Want to Make a Game, and the next one's called So You Want to Do a Kickstarter. Uh, I think those are both pretty informative. Oh, a lot of it comes down to sort of what you're thinking about, what you want, and what you're trying to accomplish. Um, you know, Kickstarter serves a good, very specific purpose, um, but, you know, brings on a whole lot of additional work and effort. Um, around, you know, if you just design something, you have to become a marketer and a manufacturer and a salesman and a whole bunch of other stuff, which you may or may not be comfortable with. So I think, you know, if you're considering it, certainly seeping yourself in Kickstarter, seeing what's out there, joining the community groups, watching some videos, looking at the James Matthews stuff, look at the uh, Stonemeyer Stone games, Jamie Stegmeyer stuff um, is all super valuable. Certainly my videos can be helpful. Um, and there are many others. Um, but, you know, I don't think there's, you want to plan it, you want to think about it, you want to get your numbers right. But like, I don't think there's harm in trying. Um, I think you just need to sort of make sure to walk through the end to end experience to know what you're getting, uh, getting into. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with me. Oh, for sure. It's great. Uh, we, we really covered a lot of, uh, a lot of topics here.
Thank you.